morning, church. Great to see you. It's a beautiful day. I hope you're well. I'm Greg Paris, senior pastor here. We are doing a series on life, and we've been talking about relationships, and we've been talking about money and about struggles, and today we want to talk about work, because work is applicable to all of us. In fact, most of us will spend most of our lives at work, and so we want to learn more from Solomon today about wisdom pertaining to this subject. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ecclesiastes, the fourth chapter. I'm going to read verses 4 to 6 and 9 and 10. And just before we uh, read the scripture this morning, I want to refer to a statement which we uh, have produced on the back of the sermon outline. So if you have your sermon outline handy, ready to go, I want to reference this statement regarding the events last weekend in Charlottesville, Virginia. And I've put this in print so that uh, you can have an explicit verbatim response to this uh, serious issue and so that you'll have a copy of it if you want to engage other people in conversation you'll have some reference points. And I know you can read and I can read, but I want to say these words so that you can hear them if that's okay. Union Chapel Ministries condemns the violence, hatred, and bigotry that occurred in Charlottesville, Virginia this past weekend. The actions and rhetoric which the world witnessed do not represent the core values of the United States and are incompatible with the life of Jesus and the nature of the kingdom of God. We categorically reject the myth of white supremacy. Now that statement, friends, is without qualification, without equivocation. That's not, but what about or what if? None of that. Categorically, we reject the myth of white supremacy. And we join in fervent prayers for comfort for the families of those who died, for healing for those who were injured physically, emotionally, and spiritually, for wisdom for governmental authorities as they respond to the challenges presented, and for repentance and transforming love in the lives of those who perpetrated the acts of violence and gave voice to hatred and bigotry. We pray for God's justice to be established and for healing of our nation from wounds and evil that have existed for too long. Our hope is not found in the goodness of the human heart, but rather in the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who tears down the walls of division and who has entrusted to us a ministry of reconciliation and healing. We long for the fullness of the kingdom of God to be established in our midst, where people of every ethnicity will gather as one and as equals under the lordship of Jesus Christ. We commit to work for the elimination of hatred, bigotry, and prejudice, and to ensure that God's best is fully available to every person. We proclaim that the life of Jesus is light for all people and that the light shines in the darkness and darkness cannot overcome it. Amen. Okay, thank you for uh, turning to Ecclesiastes 4. Let's hear the wisdom of Solomon. Solomon is arguably the wisest man who's ever lived. We know he's the wealthiest guy who ever lived. He's got some insight into work and so let's learn from it if we can. Our custom is to stand to hear God's word, so as you're able, would you please? And I'll begin at verse 4 of chapter 4. And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Down to verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, the one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. 
Now may God inspire us today and encourage us through his word. You may be seated. Thanks so much. Solomon asked the same question four different times in the book of Ecclesiastes, and the question is this, why should I work so hard? What does a man get in return for all of his hard work? And as he unpacks the answer to that question, he categorizes people into two basic categories. He, he describes a lazy person, the person who is uncommitted to work and who is allergic to work, breaks out in hives when work is present. And then on the other extreme, he talks about the person who overworks, who is a workaholic, if you will. And so you have these extremes. Uh, now, very rarely do you run into someone who's just completely uh, unmotivated and, and lacks ambition totally and, and is just lazy and refuses to work. On the other hand, you rarely see someone who's just going crazy with their work and completely out of control as a workaholic. So what most of us will find is that we are on the continuum somewhere between. And so what I want you to do as we begin this morning is I want to imagine where you might lean on the scale. Do you tend to fall slightly? Do you, do, does your momentum fall slightly to the lazy side? Or do you lean more toward the overworked side? And all of us have kind of a place there. But if you imagine yourself on one of those tendencies and another, then you can make the application and maybe make the adjustments to your life that Solomon's wisdom provides. So on your outline, you'll see that there are a number of points that Solomon makes for us that if you're lazy, this will put you on the road to success. And it's, and it's just godly wisdom. Here's the first one. Write this down. Work enthusiastically. Work enthusiastically. Now, the word enthusiasm comes from two Greek words, which means in God. Enthusiasm, in theos, enthusiasm means in God or the life of God in us. So our work is an expression of God's life through us and is through us. I love uh, Numbers, or Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 10. It says, whatever your hand finds you to do, do it with all your might. Now, that's a, good, that's a good word. So in other words, put your heart into it. Uh, be enthused about your work and, and do, it, do it with that kind of passion. Work enthusiastically. Number two, you want to write this down. Solomon says, work with integrity. Work with integrity. Ecclesiastes 7.1. A good reputation is better than expensive perfume. Good reputation, better than expensive perfume. Now, what is Solomon saying? He's saying it is better to be good than it is to look good and smell good. It's better to be good than to look good and smell good. Now, that's not saying anything bad about looking good and smelling good. Because looking good and smelling good, if you're around me, I would prefer that you look good and smell good. But Solomon is simply suggesting that it's better to be good. <laughs> In other words... It's, it's better to be good than to give the impression that you are good. It's better to have as much in the storehouse as you do in the store window, right? It's better to have a good reputation than it is to be a fake or a fraud constantly needing to manage and spend your PR. So it's just better to be good. I found an interesting study from the forum company. They surveyed 300 salespersons from around America, selected at random who were top achievers and others who were more modest in their achievement. And here was the discovery. 
their achievement level was not directly connected to their talent, their work habits, or their appearance. Talent, work ethic, or appearance were not the primary indicators. The persons who were the highest achievers were the ones that had a reputation for integrity. Now think about that. The, the, the salespersons across America who were the highest achievers were apparently living their life in such a way that it engendered trust in the people that they were trying to sell goods and services to so that they had an integrated life. What they said, they would actually do. What they promised, they would actually perform. And over time, this developed trust, and so their clients kept coming back and buying from them their products and services. So integrity is one of those issues in life that tends toward, leads toward success. Here's a third thing that Solomon teaches. He says to work skillfully. Work skillfully. Ecclesiastes 10.10. If the axe is dull and its edge unsharpened, more strength is needed, but skill will bring success. So he said if your axe is dull, you know, you got to work harder to cut, chop something, but skill is always necessary. So one of the theories around uh, the dinosaurs and their extinction is that they were unable to adapt to a changing environment. Now let me ask you a question today. Is the work environment and the and the business environment in America changing these days? Are you serious? It's changing so quickly, so rapidly, that it's very difficult to keep up with it. So here's the question. Are you developing new skills in your profession, and are you sharpening the skills you have? Because these two things are very critically important, to work skillfully. Here's, a, here's just some common sense advice. Here's an application to this point. Find people who do what you do better than you do it and learn from them. Find people who do what you do better than you and learn from them. This is how you develop skills. Many years ago, I saw a, a magazine article in a Christian publication that featured our good friend Terry Takel and the church that he started. He planted in College Station, Texas many years ago, and the church had grown to over 1,000 people and it was percolating, and as I read this article, I thought to myself at the time, this guy is, has been where I'm going. This guy knows some things about church that I don't know. And so I didn't know Terry. I'd never met him, but I got his phone number, and I called him up just out of the blue, and I said, hi, introduce myself. And I said, if I come to College Station, would, would you talk to me? And he said, yeah, come on down. And I got on an airplane, flew to College Station, and sat with Terry Takel, for three days. And he taught me things I didn't know and helped me sort my life in ways that have been life-changing. In other words, I found someone who did what I did better than I did it, and I learned from him. 20 years ago, I asked our youth pastor at the time to, to find out who was best reaching teenagers in America. Who is more effective at reaching teenagers than anyone else in America? I want to know who they are and how they're doing it. And I said, I don't care how long it takes you, and I don't care how much it costs. I want to know who's reaching kids. And she, for three months, she was gone. She's flying all over the place. She's going to conferences. She's making phone calls. Three months later, she walked in my office. She said, I found them. I said, oh, you have? She said, yes, I have. And she said, they're in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And the youth ministry is called 180. 
And I said, well, tell me how it works. She said, you have to go out there. In fact, if you want to be like 180, you have to go out and listen to their senior pastor, talk to them. That's one of the rules. Not just the youth pastor, but the senior pastor has to go there. And I said, I'm not going out there. And she said, well, then you don't want to reach kids. So I got on a plane, went out to Tulsa, and, and I learned. See, I, I, I found people who do what I do better than I was doing it, and I learned from them. That was 20 years ago, and now we've... In these 20 years, we've had 120,000 students attend 180 here at Union Chapel, and we've baptized over 1,400 people. Solomon said, if you want to be successful, you should work skillfully. Work skillfully. So you've got to sharpen the skills you have and develop skills you don't have. It'll tend toward success. So let me ask you, are you a dinosaur at your work? Are you a dinosaur in your profession? Time to sharpen the skills. Here's number four. This is what Solomon said. He said, work efficiently. Efficiently. Ecclesiastes 8.6, there's a right time and a right way to do everything. Right time and a right way. Right time, right place, right way to do things. He's saying economize your energy, economize your time, work efficiently. You know, you've heard the old adage, you don't always have to work hard, but you need to work smart. You need to do the right things at the right time, and this will tend toward efficiencies and success. I've practiced something for many years. I didn't come up with this myself. I mean, it's common business management, time management, and it's simply this, and I share it with you, because if you'll do this, it'll change your life, change your efficiency. All I do every day is I either check my list or I construct a list of three or four things, never more than that, three or four things that are my priority for that day. And then I don't let myself get so distracted, so interrupted with the urgent matters that come up. There's always stuff going on. There's always interruptions. But I do not let myself get distracted from from making sure that I address those things in the priority that I've set them. Number one, number two, number three, number four. And we all know the tyranny, the urgent that presses in and pushes you away from your priorities. Well, that's working. That's not working smart. That's working harder. And so Solomon says work efficiently. And the best way to do that is there's a right time and a right place and a right way for everything. So get your priorities and work your priorities. There you go. Number five, work cooperatively. Work cooperatively. Ecclesiastes 4 from Our reference this morning, 9 and 10, two are better than one because they can work more effectively. If one of them falls down, the other can help him up. Yeah, this is the value of teamwork. Team, together each accomplishes more. Teamwork is good. Working in partnership is a good thing. Getting getting people around you to be successful will make you more successful. And so Solomon is talking about the importance of cooperation. And by the way, we have a great team here at Union Chapel. I know that you appreciate our staff, and these people are passionate in their faith, and they love God, and they, they, uh, they really care about what they do, and they work hard, and I know you appreciate that and the fruit that they produce on our behalf. So here's the sixth thing that Solomon says. Work persistently. Work persistently. Ecclesiastes 11.6, keep on sowing your seed. You never know which seed will grow. Perhaps it all will. Work persistently. Keep sowing your seed. 
Now, persistence is a real virtue. It's a, it's a godly strength. There, there's this misnomer. There's this lie that's, that's believed in our culture. There's fake, this is fake news in our culture. The fake news is that successful people never fail. Successful people never fail. And nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, it's just, that's humorous. It's ridiculous. What I have experienced and what I have observed is that successful people actually end up making more mistakes and have more failures than folks who don't find as much success. The difference in these people is their willingness to persist and to not give up and to not quit. What I've observed is that highly successful people are just ordinary folks, average folks, who just won't let it go. And they just dog it until it gets done. Now, that may sound like preaching to you, but I'm telling you, it's the truth. You don't have to be anything exceptional to be successful if you will employ a persistent spirit. It's so important. By the way, talking about persistence, I should announce to you today that today, August 20, is, is our 40th wedding anniversary. Beth and I have been married 40 years today. Yeah. God bless her. 40 years. We have some dear friends who have been married over 60 years, and I asked him not long ago, I said, what's the key to being married 60 years? And he said, just stay married. <laughs> to write that down. <laughs> One of our parishioners, after first service this morning, he, before his wife passed, they were married over 65 years, and he said, when people, ask, when people ask me how we were able to be married 65 years, he said, just lacked ambition. <laughs> Which is really funny. I thought that was really a good one. Lacks ambition. Yeah. Why are you the one laughing the loudest at that? One... One cackle over everyone else's cackle. My wife. Yeah. It's like the man who was trying to woo the woman he loved into marrying him. So for 47 days in a row, he sent a dozen roses to his beloved. 47 days in a row. That's persistence. Would you agree? And it worked. On the 48th day, she married the delivery man. So if you tend toward the lazy side, if you kind of lean that way, these are really helpful admonitions from Solomon about how to make adjustments in your life. Now, if, if uh, my hunch is right, I would guess that most people at Union Chapel would tend toward the work, workaholic side rather than the lazy side. That would be my guess. And so I suspect I'm going to be talking to more of you from the rest, for the rest of the sermon than I was at the prior and so Solomon actually gives us five ideas here if you're a workaholic on how to make these adjustments. And I've used the word relax as an acrostic so you know the first letter of each of these fill in the blanks are the letters R-E-L-I-X. So here's the first one. To readjust my values. Readjust my values. Ecclesiastes 4.4, I've learned why people work so hard to succeed. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? I've learned why people work so hard to succeed. Now, if he had left it there, we'd be left to speculate on it, but this is what Solomon, the wisest man who's lived, 
He said, I've learned why people work so hard to succeed. They envy the things their neighbors have. Oh, ouch. Now, now he's stomping around on our feet a little bit. I've learned why people work so hard to succeed. They envy the stuff their neighbors have. Now here Solomon is exposing the motives of our hearts. If, if you'll be open to this truth and you'll open your heart to this, to, to the exposure to God's truth, you can make the adjustments necessary if you tend toward workaholism. Solomon is not just talking about envy or jealousy. You know, my neighbor has a new car, wish I had a new car. He's also talking about rivalry and covetousness and envy and insecurity. So let, let those thoughts sink in a little bit. One of the reasons we work so hard for these reasons is that these reasons are not good reasons. What, our, what are our motives? Let me ask you this question. Do you believe it's possible for someone to be addicted to their work? Is it possible to get addicted to your work? Virtually everybody believes that it's possible to get addicted to your work. Now let me ask you this. Here's the problem. People who believe that others can be addicted for their work always think about someone else they know who's addicted to their work and then think about themselves. Next question, do you think there are consequences to being addicted to your work? Does it cost you something? I just want to submit there's an enormous price to pay for an addiction to work. You can lose your marriage, for example. Workaholics tend also to be alcoholics and drug abusers. Workaholics also tend to have heart disease. Workaholics also tend to have high blood pressure. And no, you cannot look at my medical file. Workaholics also tend to have fragmented relationships and unhappiness and surliness and stress and distress and a lack of peace. Here's what Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, verse 36. He said, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? Now, of course, we're talking about realizing he's talking about our eternal soul. What good is it if you gain the whole world but lost your soul? But could it also imply the question, what good is it if you can accumulate a big pile of stuff while you're here, but you lose your way? You lose your focus. You lose your balance. You lose your perspective. You lose an understanding of what's right for you and what's wrong, what's best for you and what's not. You're losing your soul by overworking. What good is it to build a big pile and then have the pile fall on you? So workaholics, attention. Every day of the world, you need to do a motives check. This is your take-home. This is your homework. Before you spend another day selling yourself out for something else, ask the question, why am I doing this? Why am I working so hard? And if you come up with an answer like envy or greed or selfishness or insecurity or emotional neediness or a need to feel important or pride or a need to be first or a need to be the best or a need to be on top, if you come up with any answer other than this is the will of God for my life in this season of my life, then your motives are probably distorted and will inevitably lead to a destructive pattern. So we've always got to be questioning our heart, our motives in why we're working so hard. We need to do a motives check. 
Ecclesiastes 5.15 reminds us, in spite of all of our hard work, there's nothing we're going to take with us. In spite of all the stuff we pile up, we're not taking any of it with us. Naked we came in, naked we will leave. And so we have to keep perspective on that. So readjust values. That's one response, an adjustment for the workaholic. Here's number two. Solomon said, enjoy, enjoy my rewards. Ecclesiastes 3.13, all of us should eat and drink and enjoy what we have worked for. It is the gift of God. Eat and drink and enjoy. Now, this doesn't even sound like it should be in the Bible, does it? Here's what religion does. Religion says, if you're having fun, something wrong with it. Religion said, if you're having a good time, can't be of God. Religion is a nasty nuisance for people who really are alive in their faith in Christ. It's just not good. And it, and it affects us in negative ways. And so as a result of that, we can't enjoy ourselves as fully as God intends. But he reminds us that we are to enjoy ourselves because it is the gift of God, the things that we have earned through our work. Most folks, after so many other things, they fail to enjoy what God has already given them. Last week, I came to this part of the sermon. It was the midpoint of the sermon. I had to wake you up. I said, I said everybody wake up. And most of you were sleeping through last week's sermon. And, and I told you that here is the summary statement for, for last week's sermon. And if you can stay awake for eight seconds, you'll actually get the summary of the whole message. You only have to listen to eight seconds. And some of you actually stayed awake for eight consecutive seconds. Go ahead. Feel good about that. That's a way to go. I mean, it's, you know... Awesome. Really great. So here, let me just rehearse that statement, summary statement from last week because it fits into this point. And I'll just say it again to remind you and refresh you. Happiness isn't getting what you want. Happiness is enjoying what you already have. Whoop, there it is. Whoop, there it is. Yeah. Happiness isn't getting everything you want. Happiness is enjoying what you have. And that's the invitation that God makes to us to enjoy, eat and drink and have a good time. It's the gift of God. And so enjoy it. Enjoy your rewards. Now here's number three. Now this is going to be more difficult for some of you hardcore workaholics. You need to limit, limit the labor. Now this is a conscious choice to change your behavior. This is an intentional commitment to be realistic about my time, my energy, my commitments, my relationships, my priorities. And literally, God asks some of us who are hardcore in our workaholism, really addicted to it, to, to cut back, chill out, limit, limit how much you're spending on your work. Ecclesiastes 10.15, this is from the Good News paraphrase, not a literal translation, it's a paraphrase. It says, only someone too stupid to find his way home would ever wear himself out with too much work. Only someone with too stupid to find their way home wears themselves out with too much work. So if you work yourself to this level of depletion, you don't have enough sense to find your way home. You don't have enough sense to put your home first. All work and no play makes Susie a dull girl. We know the adage. Here's what God said in the Ten Commandments, Exodus 29 and 10. You have six days in which to do your work, but the seventh day is to be a day of rest dedicated to me. This is God saying, take a day off. One in seven, take a day off. This past spring, I did a six-week series on Sabbath. How many of you remember that? Preached on Sabbath for six weeks. How are you doing with it? 
Doing better? I hope so. We could reload it, go another six. Sabbath means, uh, sabbat literally means stop. You know, we have stop signs. This might be a good reminder. Rather than putting stop on all of our signs, just put Sabbath. Because that's what it means. It means stop. Stop and rest. Rest here. That's God's mandate. I had a pastoral friend told me one day, I, when I asked him, we were talking about our days off, what day do you take off? And, and I said, what's your day off? He said, oh, I don't take a day off. I said, why is that? He said, well, the devil doesn't ever take a day off, so I don't take a day off. Hmm. I said, well, since when did the devil become your model for ministry? God, whoopsie. <laughs> God says take a day off for balance and rest and for perspective. Yeah, so limit my labor. Here's number four. You know it starts with the letter A. Anticipate God's care. Anticipate God's care. Matthew 6, 31 and 32, Jesus said, Don't worry, saying, What shall we eat or drink or wear? For pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you have need of them. So God knows what our basic needs are, what you're going to eat or wear. And so don't fuss, don't fret, don't worry about that. But one of the roots of workaholism is worry. Own that. Own it, you workaholics. One of the roots of workaholism is worry. You know, it's, I don't ever want to be poor again. I don't ever want to be broke again. I'm worried. God says, wait a minute, that's how pagans behave. That's how folks who don't know God and don't have any trust or hope or faith in God's provision, that's how they behave. Don't be like a pagan. Be like a, be like a person who trusts in God for provision. See, there are all kinds of successful people in the life of our church. I mean, we have just remarkable people at all kinds of levels of our society, people who are dedicated, motivated doctors and lawyers and accountants and financial consultants and business owners and professors and homemakers and educators and administrators and laborers and students. But here's the truth. Every last one of us, even the most successful among us, suffer from envy and worry. All of us do, to one degree or another. And the reason for that is because it's human nature. It's just our tendency to worry. The more stuff, the more responsibility there is, there's more to worry about, and so we tend to worry. And then when we see other people successful, we start to become envious. And all of, all of the, the fears and phobias and dysfunctions that come to our lives are driven by stuff like that. So here's what you should know. The happiest people among us have learned to limit their worry and to increase their trust in God, to anticipate the care of God, to expect the blessing of God, to anticipate that the favor of God is going to come my way. Beth and I, Beth and I have been poor. We've been poor. We, we, we know what it's like to be poor. We've, we spent the early years of our marriage and and. And we qualified every year for many years early on. We, we qualified for all of the of this governmental assistance that's available to people in poverty. <laughs> we never accepted any, but we qualified for it. 
And you say, well, why, didn't, why, didn't you, you know, why didn't you get food stamps or whatever? You know, you, they were available to you. Let me tell you why. I'm not saying that I wouldn't if I had to, if I was against the wall. I'm just telling you why we didn't. The reason we didn't is because we never imagined ourselves as poor. We never thought of ourselves as poor. So our attitudes, do we have any money? No, we're broke as we can be. Do we, I mean, can we like buy a hamburger? No. There's no money for that. Oh, well, now there's, one, there's two ways to think about this. You can either think, I'm just, oh, I'm just poor, I'm stuck in poverty. It's the way my life is now. I'm a poor person. Or you can think, this is a temporary situation that I find myself in, and it's not going to last forever. And the reason it's not going to last forever is because I know that God has more important things, better things in store for us, and that his blessing and his favor will follow. And so I never, we never thought of ourselves as people who were broke and people who always had lack. We imagined ourselves as people who were blessed and favored of God and that God's goodness and his provision was going to find us. We anticipated the care of God, even in the midst of down times, down seasons, sure. And that's exactly what God has proven, that he can be trusted, that we can anticipate his care. I know about a couple who both, they both love God, they love Jesus, they're pious people, they're devout Christians, and they are billionaires. That's B with a billion. Billionaires. And in case you know what the, want to know what the math is, you, you become a billionaire when you have $1,000 million. $1,000 million. There's $1,000 million and a billion. So these are billionaires. They have billion dollars. At least $1,000 million. And they love God, and, and uh, they're both Christians. And she was raised in a small town in a very small church, very pious, very modest, uh, very unassuming. And she carried some of that psychology with her. And so now that she's a billionaire, her husband has been very, very prosperous and successful. Now that she's a billionaire, she is afraid to give any money away because her fear is that she won't have enough. This is a true story. These are people alive and well right now in the world. Now, let me just ask you, if you had a billion, a billion with a B, how many of you imagine you could probably get by? You, I mean, I, can, I could, look, I could, I, I could function on that. I could do it. Yeah, you feel, feel good about that. And you might even feel generous if you're a billionaire, wouldn't you? Maybe I could actually turn loose of some of this resource to help others in need and to offer Christ to people here and around the world. Yeah, you might, you might want to really do something significant that way and you'd feel good about it. This woman finds herself completely trapped in the idea that she's going to run out. Now, I don't know what the psychology is and all of that. That's a pay grade way above mine for someone to sort that in her psychology, her psychosis, whatever that is. Uh, and so here's the deal. She refused to allow her husband to give anything to their local church. And she assumes he's not. But I happen to know the other side of the story. Her husband is very generous to the church. 
But he does so by saying to his pastor, you must never, ever refer to what I'm giving you and to the church to my wife. You can't send me a letter saying thanks. You can't send me an email. Don't send me a text. Don't even wink at me when I'm in church. Because my wife, if she finds out about it, she'll be devastated. It'll, it'll just it'll make, her, make her really upset. Because she's afraid we won't have enough. Now, when you hear that story, you go, what is the matter with her? Right? I mean, they started from nothing. Now they have a billion. Seems like they should anticipate God's care to them. She should be more confident in God's provision. You agree, right? You, can you feel that? You could probably preach the sermon to her. You could probably sit her down and say, now look, Missy, it's going to be okay. Now open your hands. God is good. He's reliable. He's trustworthy. If anyone should know that, it's you. Now be generous and be good. Be glad. Be free. You could, you could, you could help her maybe, couldn't you? I mean, you can feel yourself talking to her. All right. Now just flip the mirror around. Now you may not have a billion, but it doesn't change God's faithfulness to you, His goodness to you, or the way you should anticipate His care. Because as it turns out, God was faithful to you, he is faithful to you, and he will be careful with you. Jesus said, look, the pagans go around worried that they're going to be taken care of, but you have entrusted your life to God. So act like that by anticipating his care. That's more good preaching right there. It's really good. I've heard that four times. That's that's. That's good. Maybe I need to hear that. By the way, every week, just so you know, every week I'm preaching to myself. Just so you know. I write these sermons for me. And I let you eavesdrop every week. If any of it makes sense to you, works for you, applies to you, perfect. Glad for you to use whatever you can. This is all for me. Yeah. Yeah because I'm a mess. Uh Uh-oh, I think they believe that, so that's why they didn't laugh. That's right, Pastor. Keep preaching, buddy. Here's the last point, number five. Exchange my pressure for God's peace. Now, how many of you know we had to change the spelling on exchange? Because it wouldn't, it has to start with the letter X to fill out the relax acrostic. So X change my pressure for God's peace. Now, this is probably the most important point of the day. And let me just finish briefly now. Yet it's the hardest to do. It's very difficult to exchange the pressure that we feel from time to time with the peace of God unless Jesus Christ is at the very center of our lives. Hear this now, if you can. I know you're getting tired. Listen, Jesus must be at the core of your person in order for you to exchange pressure, worry, stress for his peace. He has to be right at the heart of your life, on the throne of your life, central, first place. Jesus has to be first. If you're a person who has Jesus just out here, kind of uh, in orbit around your life, 
You show up at church maybe two or three times a year, and you come to church and you go, hey, there's Jesus. Hey, Jesus. And then he's out of your life, or he's just out here on the margins. He's, he's with you every day, but, and so you refer to him once in a while. Jesus, what do you think about this? Okay, great. I got, I got it from here on. And, you, and you're in control of your life. Until Jesus gets to the very center of your life, making the application to this point will be impossible. In order for you to exchange the pressures of life for God's peace, he has to be at the center of your life. Let me tell you a true story that illustrates. A man who was very ambitious grew a great business in his local community. His business was his life. It was his God. It was his source. And it was very successful. And this man, through a series of events, made a decision to follow Jesus later in his life. And as his faith began to grow, he began to relinquish more and more of his life to Jesus, bringing him closer and closer to the very center of his life. Until one day, this is a true story, one day, no one knew this, but he knelt in prayer in his office and he prayed this prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for all of the grace and mercy that you've extended to me in my life. I've made so many mistakes and yet you have accepted me and forgiven me. And not only have I placed you at the center of my life, I want, I want today to relinquish control not only of myself to your complete control, but he said, the thing most important to me in my life is this business. He said, you know that. And so today... I am turning over my business to you. You are now the owner of my business. No one knew he had made that decision. Now that's putting Jesus right at the core. The next day, true story, the next day, his business burned to the ground. He gathered with many of his employees. They were standing outside the fire, fireworks. Uh, personnel were trying to put out, the, it was impossible, the thing went to the ground, lost everything. And there he was, and his employees were crying, and there was lots of, lots of grief, and they noticed that he maintained perfect composure, that his countenance was different, that the, the spirit around him implied a level of contentment. It's very strange. Finally, one of the women said to him, you know, what, what, what are you feeling right now? You seem like you're managing this so well. What's happening to you? And he said, and now with these employees around him, he said, none of you know this. He said, I've not only made Jesus the Lord of my life and at the center of who I am, I've given my life to him. But yesterday, you didn't know this, but yesterday I literally knelt in my office and I surrendered this business to him and I said Lord this business now belongs to you it's not mine it's yours and he said I cannot explain what I'm experiencing right now but this is what it must mean to have peace that passes all understanding because he said I am at perfect peace I'm at peace because I know the same God who enabled us to build this business before, he could do it again if he wants to. Or he can do whatever he chooses to do because he owns it now. He's in charge. Jesus is Lord. 
And so now he was experiencing the peace of God that passes understanding. You can exchange your pressure for his peace in your life, no matter what you are facing, no matter what you're going through. Because as the Bible promises, if we place our confident hope and trust completely in Jesus, that he will hide us under his wing and he will hide us in the cleft of the rock and nothing by any means shall injure you. The, the, the floods can rise and the winds can blow and the fires can burn, but it will not touch you because you belong to him. And in the midst of all of that kind of crisis, you can know his peace. You can exchange your pressure for his peace. If you put Jesus at the center of your life. You know, some of you need that peace today because some of you are in turmoil. Some of you are in crisis. Some of you are in pain right now that you're not managing very well. You're a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure. You can exchange your pressure for his peace by making Jesus center of your life. Amen. Well, what I want to do as we end and conclude the message, the service this morning is I want to bless you. I want to pronounce God's blessing on you. Pray with you, pray for you. And as you hear me say these words, then you say yes. You say amen to the prayer. Receive the blessing that I want to give you as your pastor today. And as you do so, I trust that God will touch you and you can make the adjustments necessary in this area of your life. So bow your heads with me and receive this blessing. I bless every person in this room. In Jesus' name, I pray for those who lean toward inactivity and maybe even laziness would be encouraged to hear the word of God, to be motivated supernaturally encouraged to diligent application and hard work. I pray for those who tend to the other side of overdoing it, even to workaholism, those who tend to lean on their work rather than placing their hope and trust in God. I pray that you will be delivered, delivered in your hearts and your motives as you reassess your values. Remember, it's good and godly to enjoy your gifts and to rest in your labor. I, I pray then for the peace of God, which passes understanding, to fill your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. I pray that worry, that sinister, devilish, destructive force would be gone from every life. Be gone, worry. We turn our backs on worry today and we open our hearts to a loving God who has promised to love and care for us. So in this moment, we take authority over every stronghold in our lives, strongholds of envy, of greed, of materialism, of competitiveness, self-loathing, self-hatred, which manifests in isms of every form. And we receive the prosperity of God, the peace of God that passes understanding, the contentment of God and the joy of the Lord which is our strength. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen.